Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners. We have a very special announcement, so please listen carefully. As members of the Food Addiction Institute's International Advisory Board, we are passionate about supporting food addiction recovery for everyone, most especially children. The Food Addiction Institute, or FAI, was founded in 2005 and is an independent nonprofit organization whose mission is to support the healing of all food addicts. To accomplish their mission, FAI works toward the following, advocating widespread acceptance for food addiction as a disease of substance abuse and availability of effective abstinence-based solutions, helping to identify and expand knowledge about food addiction, providing professional and public education about food addiction as a treatable chemical dependency to physicians, dietitians, therapists, counselors, and allied health professionals internationally, offering information about promoting new practices for the treatment of food addiction, supplying resources for those who may be food addicted, creating a forum for the development and dissemination of innovative and effective public health strategies related to the prevention, mitigation, and treatment of food addiction. It is out of this passion to help individuals with food addiction find recovery that we are asking you to consider donating $100 during the Giving Challenge, which takes place April 26th and 27th, noon to noon Eastern time. During this time, the Food Addiction Institute can triple donations with the help of both the Community Foundation of Sarasota County, Florida, and the Patterson Foundation. Any money you donate will provide individuals with food addiction with information about recovery. This is a chance to help those who need it most. To be tripled, all donations must go through the Giving Challenge website on April 26th through 27th, noon to noon Eastern time. Be sure to check the show notes for the link and more information. All right, get ready because today Vera interviews Phil Wardell and Mary Fushi who helped get FAI started. So welcome, Phil and Mary. Welcome to the Food Junkie Summit. My name is Vera Tarman, and I am your host today for this amazing interview. Today, we are speaking with two pioneers in the food addiction world, Phil Wardell and Mary Fushi. Both have worked in the trenches of food addiction since the 1980s. In fact, have been influential in the development of services and training for food addiction worldwide. Basically, I don't think I would be exaggerating to say that they are the first food addiction on the map. After his studies in Yale University or at Yale University, Phil Wardell started his career as a lead counselor at Glen Bay Food Addiction Program in the 1980s. And I think that might have been one of the first or the first food addiction program in the U.S. When this was closed down, he co-founded with Mary Fushi um, Acorn Food Dependency Recovery Services. He also started up the Acorn Food Addiction Professional Training Program, which I do think was the first training program in food addiction in the world. He is co-founder and former chair of the Food Addiction Institute. Phil is also an author and has written a number of books, including, uh, he's written a lot, so I'm just going to give a few, uh, pardon me, Physical Cravings and Food Addiction, A Review of the Science, 
bariatric surgery and food addiction on perioperative considerations, more recently, outcome research on food addiction treatment, and he's just published the second edition of The Disease Concept of Food Addiction. Of special interest for us here at Food Junkies Podcast, he is also co-author of the first edition of the book Food Junkies, The Truth About Food Addiction. So he's a writer as much as he is a clinician. Next is Mary Fushi. Mary carries a degree in human services with a specialty in addiction studies. Along with Phil, she co-founded the Food, pardon me, Acorn Food Dependency Recovery Services and its sister food addiction professional training program. She is co-author of the manual Food Addiction Recovery, a new model of professional support, the Acorn Primary Intensive. Mary has facilitated numerous groups, workshops, and Acorn intensives throughout the world over the years. Finally, last thing to say about both of them, they are both recovering food addicts with over 30 years of stable recovery from addiction and from weight maintenance. That's it for me. Hello there, Mary and Phil. Okay, so by way of introducing yourselves, I'm going to, this is going to be a bit of a a task because I want to hear from both of you equally, and we still have to keep this within an hour. But can each of you, maybe Phil, you can start, just give a short synopsis of how food addiction impacted your life and what was your aha moment? And then Mary, I'll ask you after that. So Phil. That's very simple. For the first 46 years, I was I should say, a successful college professor and administrator and a progressively late-stage food addict. And in 1946, it got really bad and to the place where I was, it had affected my mind and my ability to deal with. And I came to my men's group. I had a men's group, it was just a support group. And a guy there had just come back from alcoholism treatment. And I told him my story and he said, Phil, You eat just like I used to drink. That changed my life. I didn't know the word food addict yet, but that began 34 years of recovery, and two of them were really tough. So I'm a hardcore food addict. So that was was the aha that's made a difference in my life. Can you just give one example of how food dominated your life before that aha moment, before you actually found recovery, just so that our listeners know that you are one of us, as it were? Well, I gained either, I lost. I lost either 25 or 50 pounds every year, and I gained it back the next year, usually with more. I think that's the, that's how I saw it. I saw it as a weight problem and had a lot of successful dieting experience and, and tremendous relapse experiences. Okay. All right. Thank you. So, Mary, do you want to give your description of what how food addiction was in your life and your aha moments? First of all, food addiction had a horrible impact on my life. I never knew what was, what was wrong with me. I was just morbidly obese from a very young age. I gained and lost 100 pounds five different times. I thought if I just tried harder, exerted my willpower, that I would be, be able to stop eating compulsively. And it was only when I learned about food addiction and began to identify that I was a food addict, and I did that when I was in treatment in 1986, that was my aha moment, when I realized that this was something beyond my control, my willpower to control, that I actually, it's actually an illness, and it just, learning that was an aha moment for me. So how did the, either of you take this, please? I mean, in the 1980s, which is when you're talking about your the time of your aha moment, there wasn't the concept of food addiction floating around. 
Bill, you heard it in an AA meeting or from an AA meeting. Yeah, I, it was actually not in an AA meeting, but it was oh. a, an alcoholic in a, yeah. a support group I was yeah. in. So and how did you stumble upon the solution then? That well, he said I should go to Foodaholics Anonymous, oh. <laughs> which is all he knew. And I had tremendous resistance. And it took me six months, and I finally got to one of the 12-step programs. The basic thing that happened there was another aha moment. I heard the words, put down your binge foods, have three moderate meals one day at a time. And I went home and I wrote down my binge foods. There were 76. And on the next day, I didn't eat any of them. And it was the first day that I could remember that I didn't binge. I'll just say, I haven't picked up those foods for 34 years and I haven't binged. The doing that is a much deeper problem. Yeah. Yeah. The way that you approached this one was to identify your binge foods, stop using them. And that was your basically your first platform of, of recovery. That was did, the first recovery, right? Yeah. Did you systematize? Because there wasn't anything systemic at that point. So like, how did you both figure out how to, because I'm thinking that you both were sober since those early days. Yeah. So I was in a 12-step program. Okay. All right. For me, I was actually, it was in 1986 that I first went to treatment, but I did not stay sober after that. I did not stay abstinent after that. I spent four years in and out of relapse, and it was my second hospitalization in inpatient treatment for food addiction in 1990, where I finally, you know, surrendered. But it was at that point where when, when, I, when I was in treatment that they introduced me to 12-step fellowship that had strong recovery support. And I stayed connected with really strong recovery, not only from the treatment center that I was in with professionals that I was working in, but also in my 12-step support group. Okay. Now you said treatment center and we don't have treatment centers today. What treatment center are you talking about? Was that Glen Bay? I went to Glen Bay Hospital in Tampa. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank God that was there. Uh, that, that hospital closed after many years of being very effective and helping thousands of food addicts due to insurance withdrawing support for food addiction treatment. How long was that program? Because that, like, that's probably the only program that was consistently for food addiction, right? No, like, there were five or six at that time. It was, I think, the best, honestly. And it was a, eight to tw- it was a six to eight week program that yeah. was followed by a halfway house if you needed it. Wow. And How many uh, years did that exist? It, it existed between 1985 and 1997. Wow. I, think it, I think it was a little before 97 when it closed. I think it was more like 95. So it was about 10 years yeah. that it was really in, in very powerful. Yeah, yeah, so there was a 10-year period of time when we actually had services and we have not picked up since. But actually, right. so when it closed down, my understanding is both of you moved from your own personal story to making it a professional work because you transformed Glen Bay into something. So do you want to talk about what you did. And I believe that it Phil, you're the one who initiated that, but Mary, you were along along the way as well, weren't you? Yes. Well when when Glen Bay Hospital closed, Phil and another woman named Patricia Lutz had been facilitating weekend work retreats for the alumni. And so he was asked to take over the alumni support for the hospital when they closed. And he did that. And then prior, right just prior to that, I had gone to Seattle to work with Phil to do a program. We just initiated a week-long program to help people detox. It became the ACORN primary intensive once we formed that intensive. But that's how we came about. We formed ACORN basically for the alumni from Glen Bay Hospital. 
And we did many, many weekends over the course of a year in different parts of the country, primarily in the Northeast. Well, I had hung my shingle out. I had been a college teacher and wasn't sure I was going to be able to go back into that. I was still weak from recovery. I was like a a one-year drug addict. And Mm. So I, I tried just doing counseling, being a counselor. And, and basically, the way I did it was I offered people to come to have um, abstinent meals. They had to pay for the food. I'd cook. And if they wanted, they could stay around and talk. And they did. And it was usually two or three hours. And everybody did a lot. I enjoyed it. They enjoyed it. They learned a lot. I, but they, the thing is, they, none of them were consistently abstinent. And I said, if this was alcohol, we would be sending you back to treatment. And we tried like hell to find a treatment program that was food addiction based and uh, couldn't. And one day I turned around to this woman. And I said, anybody here have a house? Why don't we just take over a house for a week? And we'll do the same things during the week that we did in treatment. And my supervisor said I had to do this with a woman. And Mary was the first person I thought about. So she came and we did what was the first intensive. It wasn't called that. But there were seven people, all of whom were very chronic relapsers in a way. And one was a multiple personality. It was quite a crew. And they all got abstinent. Okay. They all so- got abstinent in five days. I can remember driving back home saying, we have just discovered detox for food addiction yeah a five to seven day detox yeah yeah okay and then we started doing it in in the acorn groups that we were doing and it it turned out it worked just as well there and you know when covid happened we shifted um it's now shift recovery by acorn and i'm not with it but they we we shifted to doing it online on uh, what's it called virtual virtual right so so we do we do essentially residential intensives with people in their own homes but they're on this this mechanism all all the twenty four seven. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So anyway, it's this five day. It's five days, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This intensive, like eight hours or ten hours. Well, you're saying twenty four hours with the, the no, thing. It was twenty four seven when we began the yeah. first few years. We frequently got up in the middle of the night because somebody was going to go binge. And when people had either emotional issues or food issues, we just started working them. Yeah. Before we went to the virtual, when we do the in-person, which we will be getting back to again, it, it will be, we'll, it, everyone will be staying together. On the virtual, the uh, Zoom link is open for people and to be together about 18 hours of the day. Uh-huh. And part of that, so it's it's sort of intensive therapy, monitoring, fellowship, all that, but there's also a food plan. And can you say a little bit about that food plan for our listeners? Like you have your version of what's called the food abstinent program. And what did that look like? Mary, do you want to take it? Sure. We have, it, we have um, a book that Mary and I wrote. It has the food plan in it. So you can, you uh, can do it in more detail. Go ahead, Mary. Yeah. The food plan, it came originally from Glen Bay Hospital of Tampa. It has been modified slightly over the years. It's basically a four, three meal a day plus a snack at night. It eliminates the commonly addictive foods, which is all forms of sugar, including any artificial sweeteners, any kind of flour, not just wheat flour, but any kind of flour. It also eliminates caffeine and alcohol and high salt, high fat. And those are the most common addictive foods that we have found. And so, and then it is also a weighted measured food plan that deals with the compulsive. Oftentimes, some people are actually 
have like a volume addiction. I think that's one of my strongest addictions is to volume. So it helps to put parameters and boundaries around not eating too much and not eating too little. And things are broken down very specifically so that you eat certain food categories at each meal. Okay. And so how many of these acorn intensives, that's what they were called, would you have in a year? Like, are we, were we talking like every third weekend or, or like how many would you have? Yeah, about that, about every yeah. third. We tried to do two a month. Two and a it month? It was all over the East Coast. It was wow. New Jersey, uh, well, actually the Midwest, Chicago, Midwest, Boston. Okay. We would rent, rent a house, same way we did uh, in Seattle. And we would come out there and they would come out there and then we'd do a week together. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes when we would do two of months, but we did more of the weekends and then we would do about an intensive about a month and then we would do weekends in between. And what was the success of these intensives? Well, I mean, it's not well known, but the success of this type, the Glen Bay model, either at the Glen Bay Hospital or at some other hospitals, which were up at the time, and our residential retreat and other ones put together by Kay Shepard and other people is really quite substantial. And we knew that because they were coming back as alumni and 10% would be in relapse, but most of them would be coming back abstinent. And we finally did, um, we did a, a survey, seven pages, everything yeah. from our alumni, and we found out that Five years later, this is, I'm rounding off some figures here. Five years later, a third of the people had been absent back to back from mm -hmm. the intensive. Another third were absent, but they'd had a couple of relapses, often gone back to more intensives. So the recovery rate is very high. We put that out in a book. Yeah, is uh, that that outcome, that one that you just got published about food addiction outcomes? No, that actually, we pulled that back. We need to do some more work on that. Okay, uh, I'm going to get some, some more info on you. Oh, this is the book. It's on Amazon, and it has the structure of the intensive, what, how, exactly what we did. It has um, really quite a bit of information, in, including the 12-step groups that we referred people to. And, and, and it more about has, the outcome. Yeah, and it has, a, it has a short summary of that outcome survey. Uh, is that the book you showed me a minute ago? No. It's, uh, it's, no, it's this one. Ah, it's this one. Okay, right on. Okay, good. Good. And you mentioned something about how you're not doing it now because it's moved to shift. So it's the same model, though? Like it, yeah. basically, it is exactly the, it's exactly the same program. Two and a half years ago, there's somebody named Amanda Leith who had yeah. come to us. She was already working in the drug and alcohol field. And she came to us to get some training about food addiction and found out that it was something that she needed her, herself personally support for. So she became interested in the program and she lives in Vancouver, British Columbia and said, I can set one of these intensives up in Vancouver. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I, and this was after a couple of years. She said, I can do this. And I said, you have no idea what it takes to put one of these together. And she did. And she put it together. And we had several in Vancouver. And then at two and a half years ago, she actually purchased the business from us, from, from Phil and Mary. And and it's the, she had just changed the name to Shift Recovery by Acorn. And the Shift sounds for, stands for Sobriety, Hope, Freedom, and Transformation. That's what the Shift okay. stands for. And it's uh -huh. the, they do intensives. It's, it's a, the same model, only she's expanded it more. Okay, great. Well, thank you. So, so for listeners, she does it in Vancouver, but also does it in the U.S., there is and still it's going on virtually. I mean, yeah. we, we've oh, had right. people all over the world. We've had people yeah. from Africa, Middle East, Europe. Yeah. 
in the so intensives. This, yeah. Recently. This five day intensive um, every once a month, at least something yeah. like that. Okay. So out of that program, which by the way, I attended one of those. So I actually got to witness what that was like to have, um, you know, a breakfast, afternoon, dinner, and the middle of the night uh, fellowship. But out of that came understanding this sister sort of training program. Can you talk a little bit about that? The- yes. Well, when we created the Food Addiction Institute, when I, I, I guess what I call the meeting, the people there that were recovering food addicts said we would like a professional training program. And uh, it was just, you almost have to be in recovery to be one of these, in one of these early startups. It really, you have to have a passion for it. So we did. And uh, we created it with the Food Addiction Institute and ACORN. And it turned out that the people that wanted to come actually almost always had a lot of recovery themselves to do first. I mean, it was just amazing. Uh, people who had been in the 12-step rooms for a long time, but they didn't have a stable abstinence, or they didn't know how to deal with emotional stuff that 12-step programs doesn't deal with, or they didn't have the experience dealing with denial. There's no feedback in the 12-step programs. So they would come and we would say, well, we'd like you to start by doing uh, an intensive. And they would do two intensives the first year. Yeah. And the goal was to get them to the second year and have them be abstinent and have written a very detailed first step, the exact story of how they are powerless over food. Then they would start assisting us. And then we would we had a whole range of things that people did. People's needs were different. I was teaching food addiction in college by that time. So I had, I had a, a little bit of a, a range of places we could go with that. But basically... One of the people that was came was Esther 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 Helga. Esther, yeah. Uh, now in Iceland. Yeah. Yeah. And so she came. She actually had already started a program in the, in Iceland. But as soon as she finished the three years, she said, I want you to come out and do an international training program. So we did in Iceland and trained her staff. And um and out of that developed Infact, which you, yes. you'll probably have. But Infact is what would be that? What's that? But it's teaching yes. people to be professional counselors in food addiction. Yes, the international food addiction and counseling training. Right. Yeah. So she started with you as a client in the program, then moved into the professional aspect, which was kind of like an internship in the program, like, yeah. right? And then she took it over to Iceland and started Infact. So that's how that all happened. Well, well, she started a thing called UFM. She actually started an outpatient treatment program before she met us. She just Uh, said, I need help. (laughs) She already had a program in Iceland called MFM. And yes, and so she was already experiencing having working with other clients, food addicts in Iceland, and she came to us really for support for her own work and what she was doing. And we supported the staff that she had. Yeah, yeah, and and you were going over there participating in that. In fact, you're still doing it virtually. Yeah. Well, I'm still, I'm, yeah, I still uh, hope to get over there physically again i love iceland yeah but yeah the program is separate in fact it's separate from mfm and has taken off and is without any doubt the best place to train for food addiction right now i would like it if they had a a one-year internship that they did did work like we did in acorn our three-year program theirs is about a year and a half are you still doing your acorn food addiction training program or is that we have people in it but we we aren't recruiting anybody Right, okay. now going to infect yeah yes okay so so it really is like in fact is the evolution the most recent yes 
Yes, okay. absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So now we've talked about the program. We've talked about your professional thing. Phil, can you talk a little bit about your books? So I mentioned a few of them. And I, I think writing is, I think that's your first love, isn't it? I don't know if it's my first love, but when I was, um, before I went to kindergarten, my mother gave me her Underwood typewriter <laughs> and I was typing several hours a day. <laughs> and that has been, that has stayed with me. So I, I have been writing all my life. I wrote probably a dozen books on uh, educational reform, and I uh, was editor of a national magazine. It's not something that I love. It's something I have to do. It's really the truth. Mm. Anyhow, the thing that happened was when I got over to Glen Bay, and I'm now working for them, what I felt was that we needed a book that we could give to people when they were in introducing. And I told my sponsor, and he says, that's you, write it. I says, I, I got to put my abstinence first. I can't be out there trying to write a book. He says, well, I would like you to call in your food and commit to be abstinent and then write. <laughs> so I wrote this book. Okay, let's see it again. It's called, okay. called The Disease Concept of Food Addiction. Wow. And what it is, by then I was giving the lecture that explained the characteristics of food addiction. It was very experiential. We would take people through... Do you have physical craving, loss of control, powerlessness, chronic, progressive, withdrawal? There is a lot of withdrawal from food addiction. And so I wrote, a, one of the things I know how to do is to write the experiences that we do uh, as books. So this is the experience of being in one of those initial lectures. And I've always thought that we needed to pass that on. <laughs> but what happened is I wrote it and I used it for, I don't know, a few months maybe. And then um, uh, Kay Shepard's book, Food Addiction, wow. came out. And yeah. uh, oh, there are a couple other ones that came out. They were better. They were better not because they were better books, but because they covered more and introduced people to the 12 steps as well. And this one didn't. So this has been fallow, been sitting in my files for 30 years. No. You just got the second edition of that. This is the second edition. So I started giving it out to the people in the professional training program. They said, you should publish this. <laughs> I had also given it out to a lot of clients. And a couple of the clients in particular had taken it to their psychiatrist because they wanted them to be able to understand what food addiction was. And, and the, the comments that came back from the psychiatrist were, this is all anecdotal. You, this, this doesn't prove anything. So that, that got me into, into the research and now into the attempt to um, get this established as an official disease by the APA. But in this book, we also put another thing that we did, which is I, I got the initial advisory board for the Food Addiction Institute, really very substantial and prestigious people. And we put together a kind of established the credibility of the Institute. We, we published about a 20-page essay on the science of food addiction, which by that time had become quite, is and still is quite substantial. So there's this, so that's now in here. So you get to the end and well, that's very interesting, Phil, but this is all anecdotal. And then there is a really good readable survey of the professional literature. You don't have to be a professional, you have to skip some of the words if you're not a professional, but it's very readable. And it shows that uh, food addiction is a disease exactly yeah. like alcoholism and drug addiction. And I remember on the uh, website for the Food Addiction Institute, for the longest time, you had a, a huge, huge, huge bibliography of all the, somebody, I don't know if it was you or one of your... Me, uh, yeah. We put together yeah. a bibliography of 17... Like, uh, 132 yeah. peer-reviewed articles. Yeah, I mean, before Joan Ifland, Joan Ifland's book uh, that you know came out not that long ago is right. you know, full 
of all sorts of you know notations citations yes. yours was uh, the stuff earlier than that and it was like this humongous list that right. if you people, wanted, people if, wanted wanted me to break it down and i said i'd yeah. like to break it down too but i i am doing <laughs> some other jobs right now yeah so i don't we know just, if that we just let it up there and it, yeah. it isn't up so, anymore oh okay so mary you wrote the food addiction recovery manual like the acorn primary intensive do you have a copy of that to show us yes that was the one that um and we talked yeah. about earlier that has the outcome that had the outcome research and this okay. is just a little book that really details the primary intensive that we do where it came about what we do and uh, what the results are okay all right good phil did you want to say anything more about some of your other books like i know that you mentioned earlier on you wrote the bariatric book like this was one of the first books on bariatric surgery and food addiction exactly. we started we started having people uh, coming in who were i called them bariatric surgery failures bariatric surgery does not work if you are advanced in food addiction to a certain degree there's yeah. another book out actually that does that better now but the um I wanted to say something, but I, I just lost my memory. Well, you were, we were talking about the bariatric surgery book, which which was, was quite a book at that time. And then you yeah. also had physical cravings, a review of the science. I don't know. Uh, bariatric I, surgery book. That was What we found yeah. out is that they weren't publishing any statistics about um, ah, success or failure. Yeah. But we found out by talking to people who had access to the reports bariatric surgeons have to get, keep, that somewhere between 20 and 40% of the people, well, 20% of the people either weren't losing any weight or had regained it by the end of the first year. And another 20% either were becoming addicted to alcohol or drugs or also had relapsed. And my sense was, these are the food addicts. Yeah. And so I wrote this book essentially for bariatric surgeons. Yeah. yeah. Oh. It. <laughs> they weren't yeah. interested. Oh, oh, is that Mary? Can, you have to talk so we can, it, it highlights you. No, talk, Mary. So I'm that, sorry. Yes. This is the book that Phil wrote on bariatric surgery and food addiction. Excellent. Great. Yeah. Pre, pre-operative considerations. And it's not that, that, you know, like he gives a case against bariatric surgery. That's not it at all. But it's that it's the educational piece that goes about so that people that may be food addicted, you know, know what they're going to be up against, you know, yeah. and, and think about it. Yeah. There is now one bariatric surgeon in the South. I won't give his name. I'm not sure he wants publicity, but to have surgery with him, you have to go to Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, one of the 12-step ah, programs, uh, ah. for a month beforehand. You've got to do it after, during the surgery and afterwards for three months. So yeah. he, he essentially puts the surgery in the context of a recovery from food addiction, which is very different than just changing the, the size Absolutely. of your stomach. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it seems to me that it's not against, like you said, it's not against uh, bariatric surgery, but if you want bariatric surgery to work and be sustainable, you need to know this patient. That's what, yeah, we, that's we've what had a lot of people who had bariatric surgery. One person had had it four or five times. And they came to us, got abstinent, not all of them, but most of them. So that the, if they had had this available to them after their surgery, th yeah. this would have been a really good thing. Yeah. yeah. Or just okay. to be able to go to o Overeaters Anonymous or Food Addicts Anonymous. Yeah. Uh, all right. So now let's sort of look more at uh, some of the work that you actually do. So I want to say what's your unique contribution, but I mean, it's just it's food addiction. You brought food addiction, like I said, on the map. But what was it that you would actually, what did you find for people who are listening, especially the clinicians, what did you find that worked and what were the struggles in the actual trenches of working with food addicts that was maybe different than... Do you want to do that, Mary? What was actually different? What were, the, what were some of the struggles? 
Well, yeah. primarily, I think, at, and then what, Doctor? Some of the wins after that. Well, let's let's yeah. start. Yeah, I think one of the most difficult challenges in doing this work, especially in the the way that we do it with just a week long, is that so many of the initial days, if people do not come in detoxed, they are going through detox. You know, for for many of the days. And so we are a holding place for that. We are a place to, for, for people to do that. However, in that case, they really need a lot more than just the week long because so much of the, the, the that, that's a unique challenge that we, that we find people coming in. And also, Mary, let me interrupt. Uh, just because Phil mentioned this earlier, and a lot of people don't believe this, but can you give me an example of what you mean by they've come in with detox? What were they actually experiencing that was getting in the way of... Oh, yeah, my. Many people, well, first of all, they're detoxing usually from sugar, flour, and caffeine, some from alcohol. There can be, people can be nauseated, people can throw up, people have often have extreme headaches from detoxing from those those substances they'll fall asleep um and and they're just they're just sitting there but they're but they're sleeping through through much of it and and usually people are pretty irritable you know which we certainly understand but they're in cravings people just want to do whatever they can to get out to get the food and so the detox is very very real and it's amazing that people usually by about day three people are crawling the walls to get to their <laughs> substance you know it's just day like, four and five they are different people most we think it's mainly the sugar detox but the, it's about three days right. that's the main one people go through with us so you people have uh, have a caffeine detox often have to come back in a month and we have to have a longer program that supports that too right you know when we did the renaissance program which was a four-week program we found that it took about 10 days for people to really be on board and there you were trying to finish in five days so the intensive part was day three eh? that was the worst no they were that was the when the disease was the worst but yeah. the, the thing that I think is unique about this, and I really would like other people to be able to do it, is that the first of all, we, we deal with people around their abstinence the same way we did in treatment. Everybody has a peer sponsor and commits their food very specifically every day. Uh, and yeah. then at the end, in, during the groups, one of the issues is what comes up. If you have detox coming up, you find out, oh, you might really be addicted. If you aren't able to do it, which people often are not, people are not able to say, I'll have oatmeal and, a, and an apple for breakfast and do that. I mean, that, that's how out of control people are. And and at the other end, there are some people that literally leave so they can go binge somewhere. Right. Leave the intensive. Yeah. Maybe one every four or five intensives. So the, the cravings and the out of control are very, very strong. And, and we begin by focusing everything through the food. Mm-hmm. So can you commit to this food, eat it, and be honest about it afterward? Well, some people who weren't able to do it weren't able to be honest. But one of the big problems in the 12-step programs is people lie to their sponsors. So that's the first thing we do. And then whatever comes up, it might be, I don't understand what you mean by addiction. I don't want to be an addict or, or, or whatever the issues are that come. We deal with them. But also the feelings come up. And we, and we uh, as you know, from being around, 
If somebody really has not ever expressed anger, we allow them very quickly to go through some intensive anger work, not to therapize them, but to, for them to be able to know that that's a feeling they can have, they can express and let out of their body. And so we do fear and anger and tantrum work and grieving. And then every day from the beginning, people are doing what we call first step preparation assignments. So we take the same ones that were used at Glen Bay, did them over two or three months, two or three weeks. But they, by the last day, the last writing, they actually write a description of what it is, what their experience is when they are powerless. Mm-hmm. Not tell me that it happened. Tell me what exactly what went on. And we have developed a process where people can do that. We call it incidents of powerlessness. Mm-hmm. And that they are as effective in challenging denial as whole first steps sometimes. Right, so, right. so we do all those things together. And I, th- I think you're right. The, the people, I and other people at work, are, have a strange combination of being able to do all of those and manage all at one time. But we, yes. but we also know that other people can do this because we've had many other people lead, lead these yes. intensives and they've been successful too. Yeah, so, you, so essentially you're you're managing withdrawal and introducing these exercises of denial and, and whatnot throughout, plus the throughout. emotional regularity. But just to get back, Mary, to you, I interrupted you because you were going to tell me some struggle once you got, you had the first struggle was the withdrawal process. So what else beyond that and how did you manage that? I think that common, the, one of the common struggles that many, many, many people have is believing that it's their fault, believing that if they just tried harder, believing that, you know, that they're the ones that put the food in the mouth, in, in their mouths. Nobody was feeding them. So it was re- it's really hard for people to realize how truly powerless or out of control they are with food. People often think that they are in control, that they are the ones that are choosing to eat. And so, and how we deal with that in the intensive is through the process of the step of the work that we do with the questions. Like, give me, like, start writing on a time when you thought that you were going to go to your party and not eat any of the birthday cake, go to a party and not eat any of the birthday cake. And then what happened? And people begin to slowly see from their own experience, number one, that the foods that they binge on, the emotions that sometimes lead to them, telling themselves that, they, that they'll do it this time, and then seeing what happens. And that that is a real, it's such a huge roadblock for people to get that I can't control this thing. It's a brain disease that I can't do on my own. It's really kind of like a step one, recognizing how truly powerless we are. Yes. So, so what are some wins that you have? And and I, I'm going to just boast about you, Mary. I mean, one win is you. You, uh, I don't know how much weight you lost. It was we're talking triple digits, right? Yes. As a matter of fact, oh, I'm not. I don't know if I could share a screen, but I lost. I've maintained between 195 and 200 pound weight loss for like 28 years. My top weight was 340 pounds. I weighed 270 pounds when I was in seventh grade and in high school, 300 pounds. And the fact I've lost a hundred pounds, five different times, the miracle that I am not, have not eaten my addictive foods now for over 31 years is just astounding. But I truly believe that I have a, my body is different than a normal eater. And when I eat certain foods, I cannot, I do not know whether I'm going to be able to stop and how much I'm going to consume in it. 
And so, so therefore, those particular foods and that I, I just have to do whatever I can to not do that. I mean, that's and that's a lot. It takes a lot in order to sustain that. But today, I'm not, you know, they call it white knuckling it, yeah. where you just, I want it, I want it, I want it. I don't. I don't. You know, the right. freedom that I have from wanting it, from craving it, from having to have it, from abstaining, it's just gone. When you sit at the table, do you say, I feel deprived and I want? Never, never, never. Does the thought cross my mind once in a while? Oh, yeah, we'll be driving around and I'll just say to Phil, oh, I wish we could go to have an ice cream cone. You know, does the thought cross my mind? Sometimes, yes. But it is so easily set aside by what I know what the consequences would be if I were to do that. And Phil and I, the foods that we eat, with our, which are very clean, non-processed, protein, starches, vegetables, fats, fruits, they satisfy us. Many times that we'll get done with our meal and go, oh my God, that is so good. And when I used to be binging, I thought these kind of foods were, oh no, I don't want those. No, yeah. you know, I don't feel deprived today. So. Yeah. So, I mean, in the work that you've done, would you say that your experience is typical or unusual? I would say when people get into recovery and sustained recovery, it is it is typical. Yeah. It, it is unusual for people to be willing to surrender to the level of structure and support that people need and to not play with it. I know I played with it for a long time. It kept me in relapse for a number of years. But it is it is typical for people who continue to treat themselves, see themselves as food addicted and treat themselves as food addicted. Okay, great. I just want people to hear that, that this is not unusual, but if you're in this world of food recovery, it's actually pretty typical. So now as a clinician, this is for both of you. Is there something that you have learned about a, a tool that you've used or something that has changed, that you've changed, you've become more flexible about, or you have a different idea about from early days to now? Because you guys have been around for a long time. Well, I, I think for me, one of the big aha moments around that was when I got out of Glen Bay Hospital in Tampa, you know, I was given this food plan and I thought that it was the only food plan that anybody could be abstinent on. If you're not on this food plan, you can't possibly be abstinent. And one of the things that I have learned is that some people are addicted to, cannot have any form of uh, starch or, or grains. Some people cannot have any form of fruit. That's rare, but sometimes that, that is the case. You know, when we first had, you know, the food plan originally had artificial sweeteners on it. That has really changed over the years. So that now, you know, now, and there are some people who can, who can manage artificial sweeteners. And uh, I think that that has been one of the things that has really shifted for me in my approach to working professionally with people that there are variations amongst people. I honestly think that there are, that some people approach it as that there's way too many variations. I don't think that that's the case. The case, I think it's narrower than most people want to admit, you know, in food, in food addiction. But I do know that even, even within somebody who's a highly progressed food addict and is highly sensitive to certain foods, there is a little bit of wiggle room depending upon the individual's biochemistry and yeah. history around particular foods. Yeah. And, you know, I, I often use Phil's development of, you know, mild, middle, late stage food addicts as you can get away with a lot early days that you can't when you're progressed. Anyway, Phil, did you want to say what, what, any, anything that has changed? Well, I wanted you? to just say that I support what Mary said. Uh, 
when you were on Glen Bay, you couldn't you couldn't try another food plan until you did theirs. And I think 90% of the people came off on that food plan and it had enormous success. As I said, 70% were abstinent five years later. A couple of them had half of them, those had relapsed a little bit. That's just out, outrageous for yeah. addiction. So, but very soon, the other fellow, other 12-step fellowships have their own food plans. So people would come in with that food plan and they had to have it. We'd look at it and say, that, that seems reasonable. And so we started saying that if you've been abstinent for a month on that food plan, you can do 90 days, 90 days, 90, 90 days now. Uh-huh. <laughs> See, she, she's a little more flexible than me. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if you've been abstinent on it, then you can use that. So that okay. some people come in and don't even use the food plan that we're recommending. And, and okay. it works. And that works. So, um, so I've food plan any therapeutics that have changed over the years? I would say no. I came in as a, um, a fairly skilled experiential therapist, and so that I I knew how to help people who weren't able to state their feelings, to learn to state them and share them, and people who weren't able to feel them, to be able to feel them, and even how to pretty move people pretty quickly into traumatic places we're actually blocking them. And we don't try to do therapy at all. But we use those those techniques when it's something's in the way of their abstinence. So that's the rule, right? The person's so angry they can't be abstinent. Well, then they're going to do some anger work. So we would do experiential work. We, and for me, I've been doing that all along. And actually, that's that's a way that Acorn and Acorn Shift are different than many of the other programs. A lot of a food programs say you shouldn't do any emotional work until after you're abstinent. And I've always said, what about the people that can't do, can't get abstinent without doing emotional work? Well, we have a lot of them, so we do some of that. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. That is something that's unique about your program more than others. Okay, so now let me ask you um, pushback. What's uh, how? What kind of pushback has have you had over the years, and how have you managed that? And I mean, uh, you know, the Food Addiction Institute, I'm sure, has had been very aware of the professional pushback. But any comments about that? I don't, Mary or Phil, whoever wants to jump on that one. Well. Yeah, the difficult thing has been the level of, could say, ignorance, lack of knowledge about food addiction from the professionals. So yeah. half the people that come in think that they have an eating disorder, and if they deal with their feelings, they're going to be abstinent then. And there's a whole part of Overeaters Anonymous that has that kind of implicitly in, in, yeah. in their programs. It doesn't work very well for people that are food addicted. If a person isn't food addicted, that works, and they get one like, they get one victory. You know, Phil, I have to say that, you know, we owe you a great gratitude because I think it was the Food Addiction Institute with you spearheading at that time that tried to get food addiction on the agenda for the DSM-5. And it didn't get there, but at least it got raised. It got and, raised uh, and it got put into the it got put into the DSM. Not as a um, it isn't a category. It, we're looking for as food as a substance use disorder. Yes, That's yeah. One. And if you go to the eating disorder section of the of the DSM, you'll yeah. find that it says many people who have eating disorders also have all the characteristics of a substance use disorder. Uh, and that well, came after we walked into the DSM meetings and I was waving our our paper and. They, they took it and they spread it around. The resistance isn't that it isn't true. The resistance is that there are interests. There are real substantial interests in not having it be food addiction. One of them is the diet industry. 
Another was the bariatric surgery industry. All of these people are competing for insurance money, plus all of the people that have their own idea about how to recover, which, you, you know, there's as many diets and, and therapies for eating disorders as there are therapists. We don't run into that. The resistance we run into at ACORN is that we have to deal with the fact that people have been told that. And so we have this lecture, normal leader, emotional leader, food addict, which right. we do every time. We teach people the difference between obesity, eating disorders, and food addiction. Yeah. And, and that's part of their first step is to get, it's not just that I'm fat. It's not just yeah. that I eat when I have a feeling. It's that I'm actually powerless over some of these foods like a drug addict. One pushback that I find so much is I can't do this forever. This is completely unrealistic. This doesn't make any sense. I can't do this in the real world. And what we tell what we tell people is, is if I'm a food addict, the real world for me is where I can get support for my food addiction recovery. It would be it would just be like if I needed dialysis. And I, I remember working with for a publishing company in Chicago, and there was a woman there who needed dialysis, and we had a separate office set up for her for her to go into when she needed to have her dialysis. And she worked her work schedule around when she needed to have her dialysis done. And it, it is that's the same way with food addiction. This is a progressive chronic disease, and we. So tell people, can you just do it today? Can you just not have sugar today? Can you get through it a day at a time? Because it does seem daunting and unreasonable and uh, impossible when you think about, I'm never going to have birthday cake again, or I'm never going to have, you know, go on this vacation and do X, Y, Z. But, you know, whatever. And so we, we teach people how to prioritize the needs as a food addict, as a person with a disease, what do they need to do? And uh, one, just one day at a time. So that's a strong pushback that we get. Okay. And if, I, if we were to turn it around and now and say, so what is an ingredient of success that you need to see? What would you say that that would be? Like the one day at a time? Or what is it when you see somebody doing this, you know, okay, they're going to make it. What's the secret of success, basically? There are several. I think that one that stands out for me is asking for support, not thinking that I can do it all on my own, okay. not thinking that I have to do it all on my own and really getting extraordinary support to make the decisions. Because if, if, if I'm 30 years old and I'm just going into treatment for food addiction, I've got 30 years of making decisions about food probably pretty much on my own. And they really haven't worked very well if they've gotten me to this place where I'm suddenly in, in desperate need. And so it really is so important that people get that we can't do this alone and to ask for help. Okay. What about you, Phil? What's the secret of success that you hope? Well, the one, you know, the one that was hardest for me was was rigorous honesty. I used to think I was honest, most honest person people know. You can tell I'm very self-revealing. I always have been. And I, I pretty much talk about anything and say anything about myself. So I thought, oh, I'm already honest. My, um, my sponsor said, uh, I want you to report if you didn't eat what you committed. I could almost not do that. Mm. I mean, I didn't eat exactly what I committed, and I almost decided not to go back 
and do the next day because it was too shameful to be able to say that. And what she taught me, uh, you can put the book up, is how to do food slip inventories. So we teach people how to talk about the mistakes they've made and how to correct them in a very practical way, both with the food and with the feelings and with spiritual issues. It would be nice to have a a hospital as strong as Glen Bay that was backing us up. Uh, Yeah, you know what? Yeah. So actually, my next question is, what are your hopes for the food addiction future? I think you just walked into that one. Yeah. Well, I always like to start it by saying, uh, would you would you think that uh, people would be going into treatment for nicotine addiction? 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Well, I watched television and the doctors were all smoking and that's completely turned around. The doctors have changed. There's treatment now and it's a tough, it's a tough addiction. And we now have, it's a norm that we shouldn't be um, smoking in public places. I mean, uh, what that would look like for food addicts is that there's always a menu that has no sugar or flour on. Oh my God. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. It would would make, make life easier. So my hope is that number one, well, I start with the food addict. The education is done and the treatment becomes available. And the big problem for many people is money. Getting insurance and therefore getting the, the, right the big organizations like the American Psychiatric Association to call this a, an addiction so that doctors can be can be paid to treat it. Then they'll be willing to be trained <laughs> to do it. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, and know. facilities be covered. Yeah, that's sure. right. Mary, what about you? Oh, sorry. No, I, I, that that is absolutely my hope that there's more education, there's more acceptance of food addiction, and that a lot of the I hate to use the word fat shaming, but a lot of the the fat shaming that goes on would cease, and people would be more open to the fact that perhaps these people have something more than just than just they can't stop eating. And uh, I know for me, I almost, I decided I'd eat till I died because I couldn't stop. I used to pray as a kid that I, that I would die in my sleep because I couldn't manage the hell of being a, you know, an active food addiction and to be free today. I would wish that for everyone who suffers from this disease and this addiction. Okay. Thank you. So we're just about at the end. I have one question and then the final question. So my last question before the final one is, do you have a message of hope to give somebody who's listening? It could be a repetition of what you said or just... I think every single person, if they are with other people who have been abstinent, can be abstinent. And if they're with a professional in a treatment situation for a few weeks to a couple months, like alcoholics and drug addicts often have to be, they can get a a deep turnaround. And yes, just one other thing I wanted to say, which is to push the Food Addiction Institute and their conference on June 18th, where among other... You and I talked there, but... (laughs) The uh, Robert Lustig talk, and he said yeah. he said that uh, his idea now is to get clear about something that's been obvious all along: that sugar is not a food; it's mm-hmm. an additive. Yeah, and if right sugar on. is an additive, but it's classified by the Food and Drug Administration as a food, they can't regulate it. But if that was an additive, then they could regulate that just like they regulate harmful drugs. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, to me that looks like a place where we might be able to make the type of turn that has been made with with uh, cigarette addiction. Yeah. The hope that I would tell people is that it's possible to have a life free from the bondage of food addiction, free from craving, free from excess obesity, free from gaining and losing. It takes work. It takes surrender. It takes struggle. And a, a beautiful life of freedom from that is absolutely available. 
Wow. If you don't Thank know you. what the problem is, then you can't work on it. If you are a food addict and don't know you're a food addict, or if you're still in denial and you really still are, then that's the problem that has to be faced. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So final question is the signature question that we ask everybody. And that is, what would you tell your younger self, teenager, or when you were a food addict now coming from your place of wisdom now, what would you tell your younger self? Uh, Mary, do you want to pick it up there? I, I would say, honey, it's not your fault. You're lovable and beautiful and, and there's help available for you. Just, it's okay. You don't have to do any of this alone. It's not your fault. Thank you, Phil. Well, it's, a, it's very similar. It's, you can be honest about what's really going on and the fact that you're powerless in some situations, like when you start binging or when other things too, or purging, that is something that people can recover from if they have help. And you just need to be able to be with people that can be, can be. we now meet people who are, are going to Overeaters Anonymous at a very young age, and to Food Addicts Anonymous, it's, it's new, but I would have been good if, if there had been a 12-step program for food where there was good recovery, that would have been good for me as a high school student. Okay, well, thank you. Okay, so that ends. Thank you. This was a fabulous interview. I just want to close off by saying we stand on the shoulders of giants, and these two, Phil Riddell and Mary Fushi, are both giants in the field of food addiction. I mean that sincerely and genuinely. Thank you so much for spending time with us and with our listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.